why don't we go ahead and pray and we can begin our time together in God's Word. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we are a desperate people. As was mentioned earlier, we are coming from all sorts of situations this morning. Some are fine. Some come here this morning with not a trouble or care in the world. And yet there are those with heavy burdens. And no word of man could comfort them. No opinion of man could comfort them. What we need is a word from above. And so we pray that would you help us to be comforted. May we find our hope and our trust in you, not in any man. And so I pray, be with us. Be with me as I proclaim your word now to your people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When I was in seminary, I remember my professor told us about one of his most treasured gifts. And at that time, he recently received an 18th century King James Bible. It was bound in all black leather on the front and back with brass furnishings. It was a massive Bible. And before he opened it, he asked all of us, what do you think was the most well-worn part of his Bible? And so as theology students, we all said, Romans! Probably the book of Romans was the most well-worn. It wasn't Romans. Maybe the Gospel of John is where this owner of this Bible spent the most time. It wasn't John. Others said maybe the book of Revelation. Maybe they were curious about the things of the end. And he says, no, it's in the Old Testament. And so we said, Genesis. No. The Psalms. No. Isaiah. No. He finally opened the Bible and showed us that the original owner of this 18th century Bible wore out the pages in the book of Proverbs. You see, in our modern world, Christians are concerned about the end times in the book of Revelation, in Daniel and Zechariah or Isaiah. In our world, we are concerned about getting the gospel right. And so we focus on Romans or the gospels. Or maybe we are concerned about joy, and so we mark up the part of our Bible in Philippians. Or we may be concerned about the origins and beginnings of our world, and so we read the book of Genesis. However, the concern in older, in an older time, in an older era, in the 18th century, this one Christian was concerned about pursuing wisdom. Wisdom is the one precious commodity that God has imparted to us that we should never forsake. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23. This is what wisdom is. This is what we are to pursue. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23 says this, Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and discipline and understanding. Proverbs is the book on wisdom. It says so right from the beginning. Go to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 states the intended 
meaning of the author. He says it in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2, by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. He says this, to know wisdom and discipline, to understand the sayings of understanding, to receive discipline that leads to insight, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. So you can see that wisdom here isn't so much about just knowing a bunch of stuff. You see, the world says knowledge is power. But the Bible warns that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Instead, the Bible says it this way, knowledge is skillfully applied in life in the fear of Yahweh. That's power. It's about the skill of living. Tremper Longman defines wisdom as this. Wisdom is the skill of living. It is a practical knowledge that helps one know how to act and how to speak in different situations. Wisdom entails the ability to avoid problems and the skill to handle them when they present themselves. Wisdom also includes the ability to interpret other people's speech and writing in order to react correctly to what they are saying to us. End quote. Now, what happens when the Christian who is living in wisdom, they're walking in wisdom, they're living in wisdom. What happens when that Christian who's living in wisdom faces the unknown? Well, this is when wisdom must be accompanied by something called trust. And this is where we will spend our time in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Because when we face the unknown and wisdom is there, we still need something. And what we need at this point is trust. What we need is trust in God. And so I want us to look at a very familiar passage in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. One that you may have memorized since you were a child. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. I propose to you this morning that we are to trust God's ways in all areas, under all circumstances, and above all worldly wisdom. Well, how can we do this? How can we trust God, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us? Well, we need to look at three things. Three things in order to trust God. We need to look at the person that we trust. We need to see the practice of trust. And then we need to see the promise of trust. First, let's look at the person that we trust. Look at verse 5. He says, trust in the Lord. Now, I, I said it just like that because in most of your Bible translation, it says that trust in the Lord. And that is very unfortunate because so many Bibles translates God's name as capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles. When in fact, He has given us His name. God has given us His name and His name is Yahweh. He's given us His name by which He wants us to call on Him by that personal name. God is not a stranger. He wants us to know Him. He's not a force. He is not a generic deity that we refer to. He wants us to know Him by His name. In fact, the name Yahweh is mentioned 6,823 times in the Old Testament. God wants us to know Him personally. 
This is significant because God is not to be addressed impersonally by those that address Him, by His title of Lord. He's given us His name, His covenant name, the name that He gave to Moses when He says, when I speak to your people, who will I tell them sent me? And God says, Yahweh, I am the self-existent one, the self-deriving one, the eternal one. Tell them, Yahweh. Now, imagine if I try to stir up affections with my wife. Let's pretend I try to stir up affections with my wife. Her name is Lisa. And if I said to her, oh, wife, oh, wife, oh, I love you, wife. Or we attend a wedding and and I sign the gift and I give it I give someone this gift and I sign from Patrick and his wife. Or if I introduce you to Lisa, my wife, and I say to you, Hello, my I'm Patrick and this is my wife. You may call her Patrick's wife. You get the point. Why would I call Lisa by the name that everyone else would address her as wife? It's impersonal. There will be no affections. There will be no stirring up of any affections if I continue to call her wife. In fact, I have my own personal nickname for her, which I will not say here. But that is between us. It's a name, a personal name. I get to call her by her personal name. I know her personally. So in the same way, when we see in our Bibles, capital L-O-R-D, that is just really the translators following a traditional pattern of declaring God's name and hiding it from us. Instead, it should really be translated as Yahweh. That's His name. He's given it to us. His covenant name. He's also given us His name in the New Testament. The same name, but it's called Jesus. We address Him. By His name, He wants us to know Him. And the question is, do you know Him? And oftentimes, unbelievers or people will address Him only as God. In the book of Genesis, the only time when Moses was speaking, and Yahweh said, and Yahweh said, and Yahweh said, and Yahweh, in the beginning, Yahweh spoke, Yahweh spoke, and there was light, and Yahweh created, and there was animals and plants and trees, and Yahweh said this. And when Satan spoke, you know what he said? And God, did God really say? He doesn't use him. He doesn't call him by his personal name because he doesn't know him. So we need to know the person that we are to trust because he has given us his name. And the only way we'll know him is because of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, placing our faith in him. And if we trust him, we will know him. So it's a, the person that we trust. Let's talk about trust. What is it? The word trust in the original has this idea of lying helplessly face downwards. When the word trust is used, it's the picture of someone flat on their face on the ground. It's used in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5. It translates it as fall down. The idea of trust is relying upon and placing confidence in Yahweh. Placing your confidence and reliance upon Yahweh, whom you personally know. And what is it about Yahweh? What is it about God that we need to know? Well, we need to know that He is sovereign. That He is 
absolutely sovereign in control of everything. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 115. He controls all things at all times for His glory and for our good. Secondly, not only is He sovereign, He is infinitely wise. Packer says, Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Who else can bring about a goal surely to its end in the ways that He would want it to to be accomplished? Only God has that, not us. Thirdly, He is perfect in love. He's sovereign, He's infinite in wisdom, but thirdly, He is perfect in love. Yahweh seeks our highest good. Why? Because He loves you. He loves you. He saved you to perfect you and refine you and to make you more like Him. You, you have texts like 1 Peter 1.7 that speak of God as refining you by fire. You have texts like Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, which describes God as a refiner with fire. Oh, friends, the fire isn't meant to destroy you. The fire is meant to purify you. The old story goes like this, that God is this refiner who continues to purify you by fire, to remove the impurities. And He does this until He can look at you and see a reflection of Himself. That's the goal of the the refiner, to refine you more and more into His image. Oh, dear friends, this is the person that we trust. We can trust God because we know Him by His personal covenant name that He has given to us. We can know Him because of who He is. He is sovereign. He is wise and He is loving. This is the person that we trust. But secondly, how do we trust? What is the practice of how we are to trust? And this is where we will spend the bulk of our time this morning. The practice of trust. How can we practice trusting in Yahweh? What does it mean to trust in Yahweh? It says in verse 5, Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. Let's see, what, what does trusting Yahweh, first of all, not mean? We all have an idea of what we think it means to trust in God. What does it mean? What does it not mean to trust in Yahweh? And I, I say this because Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, like many of you, was probably my very first memory verse when I was in high school. It was my catch-all verse. I would quote it all the time. It made me, it made me feel spiritual because it was my first memory verse. I felt holy because I would quote it all the time. I didn't quite know what it meant, but I would just quote it. If there was any problem, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean out on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. I would just parrot those words. And if there was any problem, that was the verse. If I didn't understand what was going on, I would quote that verse. And it made me feel good about God and His care for me. Is this verse saying that I don't need to think anymore because it says do not lean on your own understanding so it means that I need to not think but I need to feel good thoughts about God you can see why someone could come to that conclusion because it says trust in the Lord and if it seems like not with understanding well what's left to trust Him with 
If I can't trust God with my thinking, if I can't trust God with my thoughts, what else is left in me for me to trust God with? It's my feelings. That's all that's left, my emotions. I'm going to trust God with my emotions and my feelings. That's not what this text is saying. What trusting Yahweh means is this. Proverbs is really a a unique book in that it, it writes differently than Galatians or Romans or the Gospel of John. It's not a narrative. It's not an epistle. It's not doctrinal. It's, it's poetry. And it's Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry, when it's written, it really has two lines. The first line says something, and then the second line explains it. It's something that's called parallelism. So in our passage, this is how it would work. The first line says this, trust in Yahweh with all your heart. That's the first line. What does that mean? Well, the second line explains it. And do not lean on your own understanding. See, trusting in the Lord, trusting in Yahweh is pitted against trusting in yourself. Trusting in God is pitted against trusting in yourself. Trusting in God with all your heart is pitted against trusting with your own understanding. So this means that to trust God really with all your heart does not mean to trust Him with your emotions. But it means to trust Him with understanding that is not from your own ways, but to trust God with according to His ways. This means that we need to trust God in His Word to cause us to think God's thoughts after Him. We need to view our world according to how He sees it. How he sees our lives, how he sees our relationships, how he sees all of it. Go to Proverbs 16.2. There's warning after warning about making sure that you do not see things according to your own eyes, according to your own ways, according to your own understanding. Look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. He says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own sight. So he thinks it's pure. He thinks it's pure. But then it says, but Yahweh weighs the motives. Yahweh is able to correct our thinking, whether or not it's pure or impure. And we need to see what God sees. And the only way we can do that is to rely not in our own understanding of how the world works, but in what His Word tells us about how the world works. Trusting means that we need to think with our heart. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 3. He says, think with your heart. That's what he's saying. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Now, I need to pause here because when we think of heart, when we think of heart, it messes us up a little bit because when we think of, when I do this, heart, we think about emotions, we think about affections, we think about romance because that's where the word heart typically uh, alludes to in our modern world. But in the Hebrew language, the origin of the emotions, the affections, the romance, the, the things of that nature, it doesn't come from the heart, but it comes from the bowels, from the stomach, from the viscera, from the intestines. And, and I can prove it to you. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 4, you don't need to turn there because it won't say it maybe in your translation. In the Song of Solomon, you have a picture of love, two lovers cons- consummating a marriage. It's the most graphic book in our Bibles that that speak of intimate relationships between two people in marriage. And in Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse 4, the the man is entering into the bedroom chamber and he puts his hand through the door 
And then the Shulamite woman responds as the man's hand is knocking on the door and goes through the door. And she responds and it says this in Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 4. In the New American Standard it says, And my feelings were aroused for him. My feelings were aroused for him. In the ESV, some of you have the English Standard Version, it says this, And my heart was thrilled within me. That's what happens when the man comes and the woman's heart is delighted. But in the old King James Version, which translates that literally, it says this, And my bowels moved. She had a bowel movement. That's the... Do you see... To us, it's funny because bowels is not what we think of when it comes to emotions. But when it comes to the Hebrew, the Hebrew mind, bowels is where your emotions come from. That's why you, you and I even say you have a, what kind of feeling? A what? Gut feeling when something is a little off. Your, your, your gut tells you feelings. Well, if, if emotions come from the gut in the Hebrew mind, what comes from the heart? In the Hebrew mind. Well, in the Hebrew mind, to trust in Yahweh with your heart is really to trust in Yahweh with your mind. With your mind. The heart is the center of all your thinking, of all your choosing, of all your evaluating, your discerning and understanding. That's why in Proverbs chapter 2, go back one chapter, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, to make your ear pay attention to wisdom. Incline your heart to discernment. He's really tackling the mind. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, he says this, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the spring of life. In other words, guard your mind from false thoughts. Guard your mind and protect it from false ideas. The heart, really, the mind really is the garden where all convictions and values grow. We need to nurture the mind and protect this garden from the weeds of sinful ideas. So to trust in Yahweh with all our heart is not for you to abort your brain. It doesn't mean to just now turn on feelings for God. But instead, it's really to harness your thoughts, harness and garrison and lasso your mind to have thoughts that are according to God's word about God. That's what it means to trust in Yahweh with all your heart. How are we to do this? How are we to practice trusting in Yahweh? How are we to do this? Well, there's really two parts in our text. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. We looked at the person of the trust, the person we trust. Now the practice of trust. Here's the first thing you're to do. Do not rely on your own insight. It says, do not lean on your own understanding. And do not lean on your own understanding. The practice of trust begins by not relying upon human observation alone, but instead establish an interpretation of how things really are. Proverbs 16, verse 25 says, there is a way that appears right But in the end, it leads to death. Go to Jeremiah. Let me show you how this works. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter uh, 17. Go to Jeremiah to the right of your Bibles. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. 
when Jeremiah wrote this, he may have been thinking of Solomon's words of, of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, because you can see a direct application of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 of not trusting in self, but trusting in Yahweh. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, reads this. Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from Yahweh and he will be like a juniper in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes but will dwell in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt which will not be inhabited. But blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and whose trust is Yahweh. And he will be like a tree planted by the water that sends forth its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor refrain from yielding its fruit. You see, the one who trusts in his own thoughts or in man-centered thoughts, he's called in this passage a cursed man. Why? Because he's relying on his own understanding of viewing things according to his own eyes. He's seeing it according to his own perspective. He sees the world only by his own opinion and own thoughts. He's relying upon himself. And what happens, according to Jeremiah, when the heat of summer comes, that is when trial comes, he's going to wither. He's not going to be able to withstand he will not see when the prosperity comes, but he will dwell instead in stony wastelands. He will perish, is the idea. But the one who is rooted is the one who is blessed because he trusts in, not himself, but in Yahweh. And so when the heat comes, because he's anchored, he will flourish. When the heat comes, its leaves will be green, and he will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor refrain from yielding its fruit. You see the picture of two people, two choices, one trusting in self, the other trusting in Yahweh. One is fruitless, one is fruitful, one is going to perish, one is going to live. Why? Because one is seeing things according to his own perspective and the other is seeing things according to God's perspective. You know, we're very good at this. We're very good at seeing things only from our perspective. We're very good at it. For example, in counseling or in discipleship, where people will be very accurate in describing what it is that they see, what is it that they feel. They're very precise when they tell you how people have hurt them. They're very accurate in describing how long they have been hurt. They are very thorough in explaining how long they have been struggling and how much pain they have endured. You see, all of these observations are true. They are authentic. They are genuine. They are Real, they are true, accurate human observations. But what many struggle is to understand how to rightly interpret all of these things that are taking place. How can we rightly interpret all these things that are going on in our life? How can we know if we're relying in our own understanding as opposed to God's understanding? Well, here's some questions that might help us to see if we are relying on self, or relying on God? Here's one question you might ask yourself. You might find yourself asking these kinds of questions. Maybe you might say this. Why did God let this happen to me? You see, the implication of that question is, who, you're, who are you blaming? God. Maybe instead, ask it this way. 
instead of saying, why did God let this happen to me? Instead, ask it this way. How is God using what happened to me to make me more like Jesus? Or maybe you are viewing life by what makes you happy or unhappy as opposed to viewing life and viewing things that make you holy or unholy. We view things about our personal happiness. We view things only about self. We view things only about us, what benefits us, what what causes us to prosper, us, us, us. We don't see the big picture. We don't see the lens in which God sees us through His eyes. We're very good at making personal observations of what we see and what we feel. But to make sense of it apart from God is to lean on our own understanding. We, we can't, we, when, you, when you're disconnected from God, all you're left with is, okay, this is what I see and therefore it's His fault, therefore it's her fault, therefore maybe it's God's fault. Because it's all thinking according to our own understanding. This is when you may need someone to come alongside you. If you are finding yourself asking these questions, how could God let this happen to me? If you're saying, I'm pursuing things that make me happy. I'm going there because that will make me happy. I'm not going there because it's going to make me unhappy. If you find yourself in that situation, you may need to have someone come alongside you. A close and mature Christian in the church of which you are a member. Come alongside you. Maybe someone in your home fellowship group come alongside you. Maybe it might be your discipler. Maybe someone that you can trust. Maybe one of your pastors to come alongside you and show you these are the things that you're viewing, but the way you're interpreting all these events are incorrect because you're leaning on your own understanding. That's the first part of how to practice trusting is not to lean on your own understanding. But the second part of practice of trusting in Yahweh is in all your ways acknowledge Him. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. This does not mean that we recognize God when we hear that word acknowledge. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when you enter in a room, when you enter a room and someone doesn't acknowledge you, you're a bit offended. And so does acknowledge mean you kind of just like, I recognize you, God. Hey, you point upwards when you're being interviewed on the, on the TV. God's my guy. Is that, a, is that what it means to acknowledge God? Acknowledge God by just giving Him some, some a shout out, some props, giving Him some recognition. Is that what it means? No, that's not what it means. It means a total involvement of God in all our ways in life. It says, in all your ways, in all your ways acknowledge Him. That means that there is no area where Christ's Lordship does not affect the believer in every aspect of our life. Whether you're at home, at work, or at school, or at church, Christ's Lordship must be in all your ways. Abraham Kuyper famously wrote this, penetra- these, this penetrating sentence. He said this, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Every part of us, every part of our being, every part of our thoughts, every part of us, every relationship belongs to Christ. Well, how can you tell if you're not acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus in all the ways of your life? Well, maybe here's some questions that you may ask yourself, or maybe someone close to you has observed about you. Maybe 
you've not acknowledged Him in all your ways, here's some things that you can ask or maybe have pointed out. Number one, stubbornness. Stubbornness. And I am preaching to myself here. Stubbornness. Are you inflexible in your decision making? Is it your way or the highway in almost every, in almost every area of life? Do you find yourself stubborn that it's got to be done your way and only your way? Stubbornness. Another way is manipulation. Do you manipulate situations so that you get the desired outcome that benefits you and you alone? Or that the situation shows you in a good light and your enemies in the wrong light? Do you manipulate? Or maybe are you preoccupied? You make things happen to you, for you, or through you as you freely desire things. But instead of submitting to the power, the presence, and provision of God as He has ordained it, maybe God has not given you something that you have desired for a really long time and have been praying for. And it might be a good desire. It might be something that is actually a good desire. But God, for whatever reason He has, has chosen not to give it to you at this time. And so you now become consumed, preoccupied with this one thing that is now something you cannot control. You're preoccupied. Or maybe you are people-centered. Are you more concerned about what people think than what God thinks? You fear man more than you fear God. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 warns about this. He says, the fear of man is a trap. The fear of man, it's, it's... it's something you don't see. That's what, what makes it a good trap. You don't realize how much the power of peer pressure really is. You want to please people so much that you don't realize you keep giving in. You're not standing. You're compromising. You're selling out. Why? Because you want to have people accept you. The fear of man is a trap. It's a snare. But he who fears Yahweh will be kept safe. Controlling. Controlling. Are you thinking, speaking, living as if the outcome of your life depends solely on you? Now, this doesn't mean that you abdicate responsibility, but it means that you rest in His sovereign Lordship, the sovereign Lordship of Jesus, and realize that He is the one that is in ultimate control. And therefore, you depend on Him and not yourselves. You know, one of the ways I find myself to be very controlling is when I... I, when I pray very little. I want to take charge of situations instead of praying. Instead of praying and resting in God, I worry and become restless because I'm apart from God. That's one of the ways I know I'm starting to become very controlling. Is I, rel- I want to have control instead of relinquishing control unto the one who is sovereign, the one who is wise, the one who is perfectly loving. So how do, we re- how do we acknowledge Yahweh in all our ways? How can, we, how can we acknowledge Him not just in some of our ways, but in all our ways? How can we do this? Well, number one, here's one way you can apply this. We must turn away from people, places, things, ideals, and desires that lead us to sin. Things that cause us to depend on us, ourselves, instead of depending on God. And if I could say this, dear friends, with sincere love for you, 
Some of you may need to get off of social media. I'm not talking about fast from social media. I mean, just get off of it altogether. There are influences on social media that are making you jealous, which is sin. There are influences on social media that are making you envious, which is sin. There are things that are making you lust, which is sin. There are things that are making you seek the applause of man, which is sin. And this is an avenue in which really social media has made you become anti-social. You're suspicious of people. You slander people. You don't actually want to be around people. You just want to talk about people. It's not social media. It's anti-social media is what it is. What started well has ended up very poorly. And the data backs that up. So you need to turn away from those kinds of things of people, places, things, and ideals and desires that lead us to sin. The second thing you need to do is you need to turn towards people, places, things, ideals, and desires that lead you unto righteousness. You need to turn towards people, places, things, ideals, and desires that lead you unto righteousness. First I told you to turn away from those things, but now I'm telling you turn away towards those things. And here's how you do that. Spend time with godly people who can speak biblical truth into your life. Spend time with godly people. And what I mean by that is talk to them. Don't text them. Go to their house. See what they look like. See how they put on their clothes. See how they fix themselves. Actually be with people. Don't zoom in. Be with them. Spend time with them who will speak not just truth, but biblical truth into your life. Godly, mature men and women that can speak godly, righteous things into your life. Spend time with those kinds of people. Spend time with dead, godly people. Spend time with dead, godly people. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is read old Christian books. Read old by the ones that are dead. They need to be dead. And here's why they need to be dead. Because they can't mess up anymore. A lot of these modern authors that we are reading today, they're still figuring things out. And some of them, they stumble and fall. And then you have this book and you're like, oh my gosh, I just bought this book by Joshua Harris. Now he's not even a Christian anymore. What am I going to do? So be careful. That's why I tend to find myself reading dead theologians. The ones that are really dead. I mean, the ones that are like long dead. Not the ones that have recently died. Read old, sound, Christian books and try to finish them. I know blogs are helpful, podcasts are helpful, summaries, but there comes a time when you need to not just look at surveys. There comes a time when you need to just not hit the, snip, the, the snippets, the, the highlights. There's a t- there comes a time where you actually have to dive in and listen to a long conversation about one thing that takes up a paragraph that may... Con- be constructed in a chapter that may be multiple chapters that might be put together in an entire book. It's a long argument, but train yourself to, to listen to that kind of truth. Read the dead guys. Read them. Read Christian, old Christian authors that don't give you summaries, but give you long, sustained arguments. Read the Puritans, the dead authors like the Puritans. Read Thomas Watson on the doctrine of repentance. Read Thomas Brooks on spiritual warfare. He, he wrote a little book called, called Precious Remedies. 
against Satan's devices. Read Communion with God by John Owen. And and I'm saying these, I'm giving you these authors, not because I'm trying to tell you you need to be smart or anything like that. I'm saying this without shame because we are in a culture that is promoting a kind of brainless Christianity that is all feelings-based. It's all emotional-based. And it's a trap, and you don't realize it. How many times do you find yourself just swiping? Someone sends you an article, you didn't really read it, you just looked at the title. You've trained yourself. Social media does that to you. It wants you to find one high, one snippet, one highlight reel to the next highlight reel, and you've got to feed that brain the next dopamine hit. The, the old art of reading old sustained arguments on one topic is gone. That's why we don't read the book of Proverbs. We just want to read snippets, summaries, short uh, highlights, read the, the old masters because we need to, to protect ourselves. Read biographies. Read biographies of Christians who have gone before you, who have lived this life, who have struggled, who have suffered more than you. Did you know that your favorite preacher has written a biography? I I didn't know this 20 years ago. John Piper, one of my favorite preachers, I had no idea. He was a remarkable biographer. He would write biographies. It's a series called The Swans Are Not Silent. He would write, and I thought, he's a good biographer. I had no idea John Calvin was like this. I had no idea Martin Luther struggled with this. I had no idea Augustine struggled with pornography. I had no idea. And then I read these biographies. Steve Lawson, a powerful preacher, has written a a series of, of biographies that you need to pick up. It's called A Long Line of Godly Men. He writes about Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards himself has written biographies. J.C. Rowell has written biographies. Why? Because there's an old saying in Vallejo where I, where I grew up, where I got my education, and, it's, and it's, it goes something like this, game, recognize game. And what that means is the godly recognize the godly. You look for godly men, and they will point you towards other godly men. But if you look for ungodly men, they will feed you ungodly things. But if you find godly people in your life, you see what they read. You see what they what they, how they pray. You see what they consume. And may you be consumed by that as well. These people from the past have lived life very differently from us, but yet they needed to trust in Yahweh with all their heart. They needed to lean not on their own understanding, but on Him. Thirdly, we need to repent in areas where we have excluded the Lordship of Jesus. We need to repent in areas where we have excluded the Lordship of Jesus. It doesn't say, in some of your ways acknowledge Him. It says, in all your ways acknowledge Him. We can't pick Jesus as Lord only in salvation and then live the rest of our lives as if it's only up to us. That we're our own lords, our own masters of our fate. One theologian said it this way, if He can't be trusted with all, He can't be trusted at all. You see, we need to trust Jesus with everything. He must be Lord in our workplace. He must be Lord in our marriage. He must be Lord in how we parent. And He must be Lord, as in some of you, in your relationships with people. Those that you're dating, those that you're friends with, 
those that you have business relationships with, those that you have partnerships with, in all those ways, in all those areas, and acknowledging Him in all of those ways, have Him be Lord of those things. Trust Him instead of your own understanding. Acknowledging Him. Have Him speak to you in all those areas, whether it's the tongue, the relationships that it may be unequally yoked, a believer and an unbeliever, or maybe something that is un, unrealistic, a, a pattern that you are going down, uh, a struggle with sin that has never been mastered because you've kept it to yourself. Maybe there's a secret sin, an anonymous account that you have somewhere hidden that no one knows about, but, but you pop in there every so often and you look at filth and no one knows about it because you have an anonymous account. Are there secret things that you have in your life? that you have hidden from people, but they're not hidden from the Lord. Repent. Expose these areas of your life to Him because He is to be trusted in all our ways. This is what the practicing of God looks like. It starts with turning away from areas that cause you to sin, turning to areas that feed your mind, feed your heart, following the well-worn paths of biblical dependence on God and praying and asking God to expose areas where you are not giving lordship to Jesus. So we need to see the person that we trust. We need to see the practice of trust. Thirdly, we have to now look at the promise of trust. What do you get in the end? What do you get in the end when you do this? What do you get in the end when you practice trusting in Yahweh with all your heart and not leaning on your understanding? Here's what you get in the end. After you, In all your ways you acknowledge Him. It says this, And He will make your paths straight. Why would you want to trust in Yahweh? Because He will make your path straight. Now what does that mean? He will make your path straight. Some believe this to mean that if God is going to make all my paths straight, He is going to remove all the obstacles, all the difficulties in my life, that He will make them all smooth. He will smoothen it all out. So they see that, they believe that straightening out your path is God will remove Difficulties and trials in your life. Or some say this, that this verse where he will make all my paths straight means this, that God will guide me and tell me who I am to marry. I thought that for a long time when I was single. I trusted this verse. God, you're going to make my path straight. Give me a straight line to who that woman is. I want that straight path. Or it could be a straight path to which job to take or which car to buy or what words to use. But the problem with all those different views is the text says this, He will make your path straight. It doesn't say He will guide you. It doesn't say He will speak mystical things in your ear. It says He will make your path straight. In the Hebrew, the word straight means, it means straight. It doesn't mean anything else. It means straight. He will make your path straight. That's what it means. The the book of Proverbs has no notion whatsoever about some mystical guidance or quasi-prophetic sort of revelation to make your life decision for you. It doesn't say that. Instead, what you find is God's revealed word imparted to those who are pursuing wisdom in the fear of Yahweh who want to live skillfully before God and men. So what does it mean He will make your path straight? Well, it means this. To contrast it to the other description of path in Proverbs, it will become clear. Straight paths means living according to God's wisdom and God's will. Crooked paths 
means living out of line with God's will and out of God's wisdom. Here's some verses that might help you see this. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 15. Men whose, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 20. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to Yahweh, but those of blameless paths or blameless ways or paths that are straight, it says, are his delight. Or Proverbs chapter 21, verse 8, The way of the guilty is crooked, but the conduct of the pure is straight or upright. See, over and over again, Proverbs is showing that there are two ways to live. Straight or crooked. And what that means is you're either living in God's will or outside of it. You're either living in God's will or outside of it. According to God, people are crooked not because they are because of the circumstances in their life, but they are crooked because they are living outside the will of God, outside the moral will of God. Walking in upright paths means walking in the will of God. That's all it means. When God makes your path straight, it doesn't mean that He will give you the woman of the one that you are to marry. It doesn't mean that He will give you the man that you're to marry. It doesn't mean that you will have your deepest desires fulfilled. It doesn't mean that you will receive success and prosperity. Walking in straight paths is not about a successful life. It's about a godly life. It's not about a successful life. It's about a godly life. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 20 says this, so that you will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. You know, I think there are times you want to, there are times you want God to keep promises He never made. Have you find yourself doing that? Have you found yourself, you want God to keep promises He never made. He never promised to make you healthy. He never promised to make you wealthy. He never promised to make you rich. God never promised to make, to give you lots of children, houses or lands. God never promised to remove all your problems. But there's one thing that God promised and it is this, to make you godly. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First Thessalonians 4.3 That's a clear command. You want to know what the will of God is? It's this. He's going to make you godly. John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. How is God going to set us apart, use us, make us more godly through his word? That's what he promises. He promises to make the Christian godly. So we can't hold God to promises he never made. We can't trust Him for promises He never made. We are to trust Him in this one area. When we trust Him, this is what He will do with us. Make us godly. Godly character is the promise of trusting in Yahweh. Godliness is the goal of wisdom, not for you to know a bunch of stuff. It's about skillful living before God and before men. Godly living before God and before men. When God makes our paths straight, we become a living, breathing example of Jesus. Let me end with this. I want to address those of you who are waiting on the Lord. That are waiting on the Lord. Maybe you're waiting for the Lord to give you this one good desire that He has not yet given. Maybe you're waiting for that house that you've always wanted to own. But maybe you're waiting for the job that you've been praying for. Or maybe you're 
waiting to be cured of a long-standing illness that seems to not go away. Maybe you're waiting for there to be peace in your marriage. Maybe you're trying to understand why God would allow an unexpected death to take place in your family. In all these areas of the unknown, you find yourself discouraged. Maybe to the point of your spirit even broken. And I want you to know, God knows what it's like to have a broken spirit. Go to Proverbs 18, verse 14. Look at the power of a discouraged person. How crushing it is. Proverbs 18, 14 is one of the most frightening passages when it comes to discouragement. Because look at what it says. The spirit of a man can endure his sickness. But as for a broken spirit, who can bear it? You see what it's saying? It's, it's saying, it, you can handle cancer. You can handle sickness. But a person who is discouraged, who can, who can bear up under that? A person who's broken, who can bear it? God knows how crushing it is when the trials and challenges of life that it breaks our spirit. Because discouragement can be worse than sickness. And it can feel like you're swallowed up by wave upon wave of disappointment and discouragement. And so here's where wisdom comes in. Wisdom allows you to get your bearings. Wisdom allows you to find out where you are. Wisdom allows you to say, okay, I am a child of God. Okay, wisdom tells me I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Wisdom tells me I am going to live again. I am going to die, but I will be resurrected in a new body. Wisdom tells you those things. But when the unknown comes, when the unknown comes, this is when you need, not just wisdom, this is when you need trust. Trust in what God will do. God is allowing in your life. Trust is what will allow you to live life to the fullest in the midst of all these trials. Wisdom prevents you from drowning Trust allows you to live fully and perhaps even joyfully in the midst of it all. Where else do you see someone who has struggled with great trial and yet also exercised great trust? Was it not in the person of Jesus who was surrounded by enemies who tried to trap him again and again and yet he would speak with such wisdom? to avoid his foes. He skillfully lived in all kinds of relationships with people from prostitutes to governors, from tax collectors to Pharisees, from Roman soldiers to cowardly disciples. Jesus spoke to all of them skillfully. And yet, when the great unknown was before him, when the great unknown was before him, he prayed, he fell down on his face. Beta. That's what it means to trust, to fall down. He fell down on his face in a posture of trust. And he said, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He exercised trust in his sovereign, wise and loving Father. You see, this text, God is telling you to do is, is something that he's already told his son to do. God is not asking you to do something that His Son has never done. Oh, may Jesus give you the strength to trust Him, 
just as Jesus trusted in his own Father in the greatest moment of his trial, may he do the same for you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are familiar words. This is a familiar text. Oh, I pray, would you allow us to apply it rightly in our lives? Maybe we have trusted incorrectly. We have trusted in the ways that we know best as opposed to trusting in what you know best. Oh, I pray, help us. When the unknown comes, when the unexpected comes, because it will come. Some of us are in that state of unexpected and we don't know. Oh, I pray, help us to rely upon, lean upon you, not in ourselves. I pray for those that are here that are waiting and you've not granted them their heart's desire. Oh God, may they lean upon you. May they evaluate rightly the situation that they find themselves in, fight the temptation to interpret it according to their own ways, but to view it as you view it. You may be refining them. You may be causing them to become more and more like yourself. Oh, help us now this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.